Shabbat Shalom. Well, today we are going to be talking about Shavuot. You know, I figured uh, since we're going to be celebrating this holiday, this holy day, this festival tomorrow, we get a little early jump on it today, and uh, I'd like to address the topic itself. Um, I do want to begin, uh, just preface what we're about to get into. I really kind of geared this message for the newcomer. Uh, this is going to be uh, very elementary on many, many levels uh, for people that uh, maybe even that have had, they've celebrated a Shavuot, but they're still uh, sitting back going, I really don't understand this. I don't know why we're doing this, what this is truly about, what is it that we're supposed to be embracing. Yes, we know it's a Shabbat, we know it's holy, but what is it that we're supposed to be embracing? So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to shed a little light on that and uh, give us, you know, uh, especially the newcomers, uh, a little direction. Now, I want to begin today by looking at some of the names that this celebration carries you will find in the Bible, not even traditionally, but just biblically speaking, there are several names attributed to this feast. And with each name, it's just like so many other things, with each name we get to see an aspect and a characteristic of this festival itself. It tells us about the festival. So let's just briefly do this. And the first name I want to look at is, in fact, the Feast of Harvest and Chag um, in the Hebrew, it's Hag HaKatsir. And you understand that during Shavuot, this was the time of the wheat harvest. This is when they harvested the wheat, which the second name is directly uh, uh, coordinates with what we just talked about here. What happened to my... There we go. Here we go. I step up and there's... We're good. Stop. <laughs> Feast of first fruits. Now, so you think about the wheat harvest and what's, what's involved there. Then, we, then you need to understand that Shavuot, one of the names is the Feast of First Fruits. So what would happen is, and you know, the teaching isn't on the names. I could spend two or three weeks just talking about the names and what they mean. And I, I don't want to do that today. So I'm going to try to walk a fine line here without getting into too much detail. But the Feast of First Fruits on Shavuot, the very day, the Sabbath, the, the, which would have been a Sunday, and it's, it's going to be tomorrow, the Kohen Gadol, the priest, would actually offer up two wave loaf offerings, and he would wave them before the Lord. Now, these weren't offered on the altar because these actually were unique. They had leaven. Now, you, typically, you bring in a mincha, you bring a grain offering to the Lord. You would find that offering, would, uh, a, a portion of it that's, that's dedicated for the Lord explicitly, would be burned on the altar. That is not the case here because you're not allowed to burn leaven on the altar of the Lord. Okay, and so the Kohen Gadol, you would take these two loaves, and this is so significant, and there's so much prophetic meaning behind this, but he would wave these two loaves before the Lord, these 11 loaves, and that would be done on the Feast of first fruits, Yom HaBikarim in the Hebrew, or as we say, Shavuot. Another name for this in the, in the English, at least, is Feast of Weeks. Well, that is Shavuot. Shavuot is the Hebrew word for weeks, okay, and this gets into the aspect of the characteristic of, yes, Shavuot is one day, but the idea of Shavuot, it's, it, the comprehensive view of it, it's not one day, it's actually 50 days. What we call accounting of an omer. Not to confuse you further, but Shavuot is a feast of two first fruits. And so, uh, let me try to 
simplify this for you. As you get to the barley harvest, which is towards the first month, okay, you're getting into April or so, the barley harvest, they would take the first fruits of that grain, and they would offer that to the Lord. And those first fruits actually begin the counting of the omer. And you would count, and they would offer this, let's just say they took it up on a Wednesday. They're commanded in Leviticus 23 to actually go and offer it to the Lord on the day and the morrow after the Sabbath. So it would be on Sunday. And that would be the counting of the omer. And then you would go 50 days to the day, and that's when you have Shavuot, which is the Feast of First Fruits. So to get technical on you, this is a festival of two first fruits, which, again, there's another incredible teaching uh, behind that in and of itself that we're not going to get into. Now, the last one I want you to look at is the Greek, or it's our English transliteration of the Greek. It is Pentecost. And Pentecost is simply a term referring to 50. And so this is, this is the Greek version, if you will, of Shavuot. Now, with that said, I want to talk about what is the primary understanding, what is the primary focus of the celebration of Shavuot. In traditional Judaism, and even in the Messianic arena, it is the following. It is this, or not. <laughs> you know, I've come to realize the devil does not want me up here. He does not want me doing this. I know that. But it is a celebration of the giving of the Torah. That's the focus, the primary understanding of this in traditional Judaism and Messianic Eden is the celebration of the giving of the Torah. In fact, it's actually said, you, you, you can read all sorts of great and beautiful commentary on this. It is said that on Shavuot, that's when the Lord delivered his Torah to his people. And I got to tell you something, you look at that and you're like, well, do the, are the rabbis onto something? Or is this simply just an easy way just to deal with it because we no longer have a temple? And I'm not going to get into that aspect either. But are they onto something? When you actually do the math on this and you realize early on in Exodus that the children of Israel did leave in the first month. They arrived, Exodus 19, we're told they arrived in the third month. And then there's days that pass, which you realize we're, we're right at the time of Shavuot. Maybe the rabbis were onto something with this. Not just that. When you look at the things that actually took place, the elements that we read about, the characteristics that the Mount Sinai experience, and then you go to Acts 2, that's when you blow the doors open in Revelation and realizing that this celebration of Torah, oh yeah, there's something very legitimate to it. In regard to that. So what I want to do today, I want to take you back to the Mount Sinai experience and I want to show you some of the things that happened. And this is going to be for, for a purpose. This is going to give you a deep and truthful understanding of actually what happened in Acts 2. You know, most people we could go up to, or at least most Christians today, you could go ask them, well, what, what, what is Acts 2 about? What is the day of Pentecost? And they'll say, well, it was the outpouring of the Spirit. That's, that's what it was, and rightfully so. That, that's, that's a good statement. But to understand it simply as that, you are missing the mark dramatically. Because all throughout the book of Acts, I can show you the power of the living God, the Ruach HaKodesh being poured out on the people over and over, and even getting into the, Paul's later epistles. The Spirit of God was moving. But I'm going to tell you, I'm here to tell you right now, Acts 2 was different. It's completely different on a whole nother level. 
And that's what I want you to understand. So let me take you to Exodus chapter 19, uh, verse 3. And Moshe went up to God, Elohim, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Yaakov, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, when you read this carefully, let me ask this rhetorical question. What is really being said here? I mean, what is really being said? Understand, this is a proclamation. The Lord is proclaiming, it is by my grace, it is by my mercy that you stand before me today. I am the one who has set you free. I mean, that's what this is. This is the proclamation. Very powerful. And we go on to verse 5. This is what we read. Now, therefore, if... And I highlight that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me. What is going Okay. Then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want to give you a little backdrop to traditional Judaism and something that the rabbis saw about this day, something that they celebrate on Shavuot, what it means to them. One of the themes of Shavuot is wedding. It is a wedding. They see it as a wedding. They see what happened at Mount Sinai with the children of Israel coming to meet with Elohim. This was a marriage. And it's interesting because you go to the Hamash Megillot, and there's a book that is read every Shavuot. One particular book in the Bible, and that is the book of Ruth. What is that book about? It's all about Ruth and all these things that transpire for her to enter into marriage with Boaz. That's what it's about. It's all about marriage. And this is the book that is read traditionally every year at Shavuot. It's all about marriage. Now, I want you to understand what is happening here. The Lord first made the proclamation, hey, I have come. I have showed you mercy. It is by my grace, by my power that you are here. But now he reveals his desire to take his bride, Israel. He seeks to take his bride, Israel. He, he declares this to them, and then he shares with them the proposal. He proposes to them and says, if you will keep my commandments, then you are going to be a special treasure. Above all the peoples of the earth, not just that, you will be a kingdom of priests. In other words, he says, you take my hand in marriage and you will be blessed above all others. You will be second to none. Very, very powerful. Well, let me take this a step further. When you look at what is really being presented here, the most fascinating part of it, this very structure that's unfolding at Mount Sinai, do you know it is the very same structure of the gospel? Did you know that? What is the gospel? Let's just follow this through and look at this, and it's scary to see this mere reflection. The gospel is to go out and it declares the Lord's mercy. He proclaims his power, and the gospel is about what Yeshua has done for us to set us free. The only reason we're free is because of him. And then it goes on, what? Then the gospel goes on to proclaim his desire for us. It's not just a gospel that goes out, so Yeshua died for you, have a nice day. No, he desires you to be in covenant with him, right? 
And this is an amazing thing. It's a sacred calling. Israel was called with a holy calling. Isn't it interesting that Yeshua says, no one can come unto me unless my Father who has sent me draws him. The sacred calling of the Father to be brought to the husband. I mean, that's, that's what's really going on. And then it's interesting, part of the gospel, it doesn't end there. It goes on just as what we're reading here. Well, if we follow Yeshua, if we become his disciples, if we keep his commandments, well, then guess what? It's the same promises. We will become part of a kingdom of priests. We will become a holy people, exalted above all others. What you're seeing here is the gospel. It's a mere reflection, very very powerful. Why is this important? Why do I point this out? Because if you want to appreciate what is happening in Acts chapter 2, you need to see this. You need to see it for what it is. Now getting back to Exodus chapter 19 verse 7, we're going to continue on. So Moshe came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, Oh, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Amazing. The Lord comes, he makes the declaration, the proclamation is by my power, by my grace, by my mercy. I have brought you to me. I desire you. Here's what needs to be done. This is the beginning of this contract, the marriage contract, a ketubah. This is what needs to be done. Are you willing to be my bride? And Israel's response is yes. They accept this marriage proposal. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. We continue on in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moshe, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moshe told the words of the people to the Lord. And moving on to verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Isn't that fascinating? Here we see the children of Israel, they've agreed to come into covenant with Elohim, and we're following this whole structure of the gospel. And then he tells them that they need to be baptized. Look at this statement. This is the statement. Let them wash their clothes. Prepare yourself to enter into covenant with me. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, how do do you get from washing clothes to mikvah? How do you get from washing clothes to baptism? It's very simple. When you read the Torah as a whole, you start to understand it has a particular language. And uh, and you really get to see the ebb and flow of the Torah. And what I'm telling you is actually implied in this statement. And let me take you to some scriptural evidence to break this down further because this is critically important. Leviticus 11, Leviticus 17. Not Leviticus 11, 17. Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 17, just for clarity. In there, we're told that if an animal which we may eat dies naturally, meaning it wasn't slain to be sacrificed or slain to be eaten, But if it dies naturally or it's torn by beasts, you touch its carcass, you become unclean. That's what happens. And guess what? Leviticus 11 tells us, oh, you need to wash your clothes. 
Go to Leviticus 17. The same thing is reiterated, only there it talks about that, okay, if you, if you even partake of this animal in any way, whether you touch it or you, you eat of it, you have to wash your clothes and bathe your body in water. It's a mikvah. That's the implication. Nobody would wash their clothes without washing their body. What good would it do to wash your clothes without you bathing and putting clean clothes on a clean body? And so my point here is, is this is explicitly a term to mikvah. Tell the people to go get baptized. Tell them to go through this mikvah because I'm coming. Because I'm coming into covenant with them. Now, when you put all this together, I ask you, what does this sound like? It sounds like the gospel. Okay, the declaration goes out. Yeshua has set us free. A desire is conveyed. What is the gospel? We're to convey to people Yeshua's desire to be in covenant with them. And when they agree, like Israel did, what do you tell them to do? You need to get baptized. That's what Scripture commands. Read the book of Acts. It's very clear. Read Paul. We're to become baptized after that. It's following the identical pattern. And isn't that funny how you see the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And that everything that happened there was a shadow. It was a shadow of what the Lord the future. All right. Now, going back to Exodus 19, after the people, they, after they follow the instructions of the Lord, they go through the mikvah, they prepare themselves to enter into covenant. This is what we read in verse 17. And Moshe brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Why? Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Okay, so Israel accepts the proposal. They get baptized. Now the Lord himself shows up, presents himself in fire. Not just that... But now we find he is going to speak directly to his bride. He wants to speak directly to Israel, expressing his expectations of what he has in this marriage. In the ketubah, we're getting into the deeper terms of this ketubah, this marriage contract. And what in the Hebrew, what is called as the divrei habaritz aseret hadavarim. And in English, this is what it looks like. The words of the covenant, the ten commandments. And actually, if you wanted to be hyper-literal to the Hebrew, it would be the words of the covenant, the ten words. But this is what he came to express to his people. It was the words of this covenant, this ketubah, this marriage contract. Now, the Talmud explicitly, um, it it does an amazing thing. It it offers up some interesting insight uh, to this, all of this. It talks about what the children of Israel really experienced at Mount Sinai, Uh, as the Lord spoke to them. And what I want to do is I want to take a brief look at this because it reveals something pretty shocking. And this this is all applicable to where we're going here. So pay very close attention to what these words are. And this comes from Tractate Shabbat. The school of Arishmael taught, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces, just as a hammer is divided into many sparks, so every word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed be he, What did it do? It split up into 70 languages. Okay? 
So in essence, what the rabbis are saying here is that when Hashem spoke his commandments, those commandments literally divided up into 70 languages. In other words, into every language under heaven, every language known under the heavens, it was spoken in. This is not talking about translation. This is talking about directly God speaking in a different language to all the languages in heaven. Now, why, why would Hashem do something like this? I mean, keep in mind, it's Israel that was brought to the mountain. Hebrew would have done just fine. Speak one language. Even in, and I do understand there, there was a, a mixed multitude uh, that would have spoke a Coptic language, but uh, probably most, if not every single one of them, was bilingual in Hebrew, considering the history between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, vice versa. Uh, after a couple hundred years of dwelling in Egypt, the, uh, the Hebrews would have learned the Coptic language as well. Uh, so, you know, my point is very simple. What is going on here? Why we even just speak in Hebrew? And we know the Lord has spoken to his people in Hebrew. Why this? Well, this is where things get really, really interesting because the rabbis actually answer the question. And they don't just answer the question. They give us a lot more information that is pretty mind-boggling. In a commentary found in Shemot Rabbah, and, and this, this commentary is directly from a passage of Exodus 20.18. Exodus 20.18. Exodus is the Ten Commandments. Okay, we read it every Shabbat. The very last one is thou shalt not covet. The very next verse is the Ten Commandments end in verse 17. The very next verse is verse 18. Listen to what the rabbis say about this verse. This is powerful. The Torah says, and all the people saw the voices. Note that it does not say the voice, but the voices. Wherefore, Rabbi Yochanan said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 languages. Why? So that all the nations should understand. This is why they, he spoke in every language under heaven. The rabbis tell us that's because he wanted all the world to know his word. The words of his covenant, the Aseret HaDevarim, the entire globe to know. I'm telling you, what happened at Mount Sinai, this is not a historical account simply. It goes way beyond that. It is riddled with prophetic inferences on prophecy on what the Lord intended to do later on. Very, very powerful. Now, looking at this commentary I want, to, I want to circle back here because there's something that the rabbis, they actually draw attention, special attention to this detail because they want to convey something here. It's very, very important. And the, the special attention is right here. I highlighted. And all the people saw the voices. Note, here's where they're drawing attention. Note that it does not say the voice, but the voices. So when the children of Israel, they're, they're at the foot of the mountain, they're, they're listening to uh, Yehovah speak his commandments, they didn't just hear the words, but what happened? They actually saw them. Let me ask you a question. How do you see words? I'm speaking right now. You hear, but you're not seeing anything come out of my mouth. Vice versa. How do you see a voice? It asks you... You have to ask, what did they exactly did they see? Well, if we go back to Tractate Shabbat, we were actually told. I want to take you back there. 
Tractate Shabbat, this is what it says. The school of Arishmael taught, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces, just as a hammer is divided into many sparks, so every single word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed be he, split up into 70 languages. In other words, these voices are likened to sparks, to flames. Now, what the, the, the rabbis are doing here is very, very intelligent. Pay close attention. They're actually quoting Jeremiah 23. They're quoting a passage that said, the Lord comes on the scene, he says, is not my word like a fire? And is it not like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? And the rabbis take this and they move it back to Sinai and say, no, what we're saying about this being divided into sparks, this makes perfect sense because the Lord's word is a fire. What we're saying is true. He spoke and flames came out. I mean, that's what happened. Hashem spoke and fire went forth. And that fire carried his voice. Think about how awesome our God is. The, that fire spoke his Aseret HaDevarim, his covenant. And interestingly enough, if, if you go to the Mount Sinai experience itself, we discover that when the rabbis, or what the rabbis are actually talking about here, isn't some wonderful creative invention that uh, they designed simply to make the story look better. But uh, let me take you to Exodus 20.18. Let me show you what they saw. In Exodus 20.18, we read the following. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. When you read this in the Hebrew specifically the first part of this verse, and I'll highlight this for you. When you read this in the Hebrew, you discover that it reads a little bit differently than what we're given in the English. Let me show you the Hebrew. This is what it looks like, and I'll read it. V'chal ha'am ro'im et ha'kolet ve'et halapidim. And this is literally straight from the Hebrew. Well, what is that in the English? Well, more accurately translated, it is this. And the people saw the voices and the torches. See, the rabbis were onto something. They understood what this passage was saying, which is why we, we have this incredible commentary on, on this whole event. The children of Israel saw the torches of fire, carrying the voice of the living God, professing his commandments, and it literally happened in every language. Now, you just think about what they saw for a moment. Really, what really were they seeing? And what I would tell you, and it is true, they saw exactly what the apostles saw in Acts chapter 2. They saw tongues of fire. These torches that are being described, they saw tongues of fire. You think about this Mount Sinai experience where it's being spoken in every language. His commandments, the wonderful righteous acts of God, his character. You think about, what, is, what are the Aseret HaDever room? You think about the Ten Commandments? It's his character. The character of the husband is, is being revealed. Let me take it a step further. The imagery of tongues, of fire, was something that's a little bit more common than what you, most people understand. The images of tongues of fire have been seen traditionally in Judaism as God's vehicle for communicating his word to his people. 
And let me show you what I'm talking about. Proof of this is found right in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The caves of Qumran, the the greatest archaeological find in modern-day history where there's all these biblical texts that go back to the time of Yeshua. Within these texts, they found a text, what they call now, the scholars call it, they literally titled it, Tongues of Fire. This is what they call it. They found biblical text referring to the, the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, interacting with the Urim Vatumim. And the Urim Vatumim were the oracle stones. Okay? Those were called lights and perfection. These were the stones that were in the breastplate. They were a part of the breastplate of righteousness. And as crazy as this sounds, these stones were consulted. They are not, this is not witchcraft. This is in the Bible. Read Nehemiah 7. When there was massive issues, this was used as a vessel to communicate to the Lord, and the Lord utilized these stones to communicate back to Israel. So Israel would pray to the Lord, and the Lord would answer through the Urim Vitumim. But what I want to show you is how did the Lord answer through the Urim Vitumim? Well, let me show you. We get this in this fragment found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is what we read. The stone, remember there's two stones, This is one. The stone, just as the Lord commanded, and they shall give you light. This is why they're called lights and perfections. And it shall come forth with him, with it, what? With tongues of fire. The left-hand stone, which is on the left side, shall be uncovered before the whole congregation until the priest finishes speaking. And then it goes on in in, in the next fragment. The right-hand stone... When the priest comes out, three tongues of fire from the right-hand stone from, and after he goes up, he shall draw near to the people. Absolutely incredible. So we see the Lord communicating to his people through the Kohen Gadol, through the high priest. How? Tongues of fire. I mean, this is amazing. Go to the book of Enoch, also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. What does Enoch say? Listen to this. This is amazing. Enoch's off the hook. And he translated my spirit into heaven of heavens, meaning Enoch was caught up to the third heaven. And I saw there, as it were, a structure built of crystals. And between those crystals, what did he see? Tongues of living fire. And my spirit saw the girdle, which girt that house of fire, meaning the structure of this house, it was fire. It was fire and crystal, tongues of fire in between crystal. And on its foreside were streams full of living fire, and they girt that house. And moving on to verse 7. And round about were seraphim, cherubim, and ophanim. And these are they who sleep not and guard, what do they guard? The throne of his glory. Understand what Enoch saw and and make the connection. These tongues of fire are connected directly to the throne of the living God. Well, that makes sense because it's his voice. It's his voice. What does Psalm 29 say? The voice of the Lord divides. Chatzav in the Hebrew, it hews out. It shoots forth flames of fire. You read early on, it's the thunder of the Lord. His voice thunders. He speaks. Flames of fire come out. It is his voice. It's amazing. Yeshua, he's praying to his father. In the midst, he's got a crowd. He's got witnesses. And his father answers him in John chapter 12. And the witnesses said, when they heard it, it thundered. They all confessed. It thundered. This is the power of our God. But this is how it works. 
when he speaks to his people. Things happen, and it's awesome. Now, why is this important? This is important because as we come to Acts chapter 2, it gives a serious insight into exactly what is happening. Because what is taking place in Acts chapter 2, what do we see? We see tongues of fire. That's what we see, but we're going to have a better backdrop and a better basis when going to this. Something that the Jewish people had. I mean, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly what was transpiring. That's why Peter chimes up. But let's go to Acts chapter 2 and really investigate this. When the day of Pentecost, okay, this is Shavuot. It's on the day. They're on Shavuot. Had fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Now, what's, remember, Shavuot was one of the three pilgrimage festivals. Okay, so all the Jews were gathered in Yerushalayim at this time. It makes sense why you would see that all of them would be together and they were as one. Because this is what the Lord commanded. He commanded them to come. Isn't that interesting? To come before him. Only instead of being on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, they were on Mount Yerushalayim this time. On the day of Shavuot in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And moving on to verse 3. Then there appeared to them, what? Divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So get this. We get to Acts chapter 2. On Shavuot, the apostles of Yeshua, they experience exactly what their forefathers experienced on Mount Sinai. All the way back, they saw tongues of fire. And the Lord went forth and spoke. They heard the Lord's voice. And not just that, we discover that this voice goes out. And what a coincidence, what we know what happened on Mount Sinai, it was heard to every language under heaven. So is the case in Acts chapter 2. It was, it was literally spoken in every language under heaven. Let's confirm this as we go. Chapter 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. It's explicit. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Moving on to verse 7. Then there were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own language, our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. Absolutely amazing. The people heard the voice of the Lord in their own language. The very thing that happened on Mount Sinai as the Lord enters into covenant with his people, key component. Entering into covenant with his people, now we see happening in Acts chapter 2. And what does that tell you? What is really happening here in Acts 2? The Lord is entering into covenant with his people yet once again. Only, here's the thing, it's not like the old covenant. 
This is a better covenant built on better promises. The Lord meets with his people, not on Mount Sinai this time. He meets with them on Mount Yerushalayim, the city of the great king, the very city that we know that's called New Jerusalem that is going to fall down. What a powerful, powerful story, right? And it's just interesting when you start to look at this, and we could dig in this even deeper, but you start looking at what Yeshua commanded them. Hey, apostles, you are to tarry in Yerushalayim until you are endued with power from on high. Wait, wait here, because I'm going to enter into covenant with you. You know, when you look at Acts 2, this is the birth. This is the birth of the new covenant. So when we think about Shavuot, this is where the whole point of today's message is. We think about Shavuot as a celebration of the new covenant. A covenant built on better promises. Yes, a covenant that is to be celebrating the giving of the Torah. And why would we say that? Well, what is the new covenant? Well, let's go to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, moving on to verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, let me go back real quick, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. New covenant. The celebration of what? The giving of the Torah. But what happened in Acts 2? The Torah went into their heart. They entered into, this is what the new covenant is about. When we come out to confess Yeshua, to become part of a new covenant, the Holy Spirit, when it comes upon you, it writes his law on your heart. And what does that mean? It means you would do it, but let me take it a step further. It means you desire to do it. You would desire to keep his commandments. And that's exactly what goes on with Jeremiah as you go on. That's exactly what John's referring to. It's the desire in your heart to serve him, to honor Yeshua, understanding the great sacrifice that he made. I want to close with this verse. Because if we talk, I mean, we could talk about for over a year just about the Holy Spirit and about what it means and how that is central to our faith. Central in the fact that according to Paul, it's your proof that you have an inheritance. It is your proof that you're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I mean, this is very, very serious stuff. But we need to go to the basics. How do we obtain that spirit? How do we get that anointing? And this is what we read. This is Yeshua. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. See, that's the power of putting your faith, of literally taking up, accepting that call. He has expressed his desire to be in relationship with you. Accept it by confessing him as both Lord and Savior. Agreeing with his testimony, knowing that he died for your sins and the Father raised him from the grave. And he lives. We make that confession. If we believe in our heart, if we believe that truth, 
we will be established. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, we're told that it does all sorts of things. It teaches us. It's a witness. It's an intercessor. It's a comforter. And according to Yeshua and the Gospel of John, it tells us of things to come. You want some insight on the future? You want the Spirit of God. The newspaper isn't going to give it to you. The world isn't going to give it to you. We need to be in direct connection with Yeshua. Amen?